Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Before we get into the episode, I want to remind you guys of Starting Small Summit. On April 13th in Mishawaka, Indiana, we're hosting our first live in-person summit at Bethel University. We're hosting a speaker panel of Joe Foster of Reebok, Stacy Madison of Stacy's Pita Chips and Be Bold Bars, and Dr. Jonathan B. Levine of Glow Science and JBL New York City. I hope to see you guys there and make sure to check the link in this podcast description for tickets and all the details you can find about the speakers themselves. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Tommy Delago, founder of Nitro Snowboards, offering snowboards for all types of riding conditions. Being a snowboarder himself, Tommy has a deep passion for Nitro, with a strong community backing the brand as well. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Tommy Delago of Nitro Snowboards. Tommy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, so where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up actually right here where I'm still at. I didn't really go anywhere. I uh, grew up in Obamagau, Germany, which is in Bavaria, south of Munich, about an hour south of Munich in the mountains. Um, and, I, you know, I had a pretty pretty relaxed childhood here, like, you know, going out. I went skiing in the early days, of course, and started snowboarding kind of early on. Uh, went to school here and basically built nitro around here as well. Amazing. Uh, did you have an entrepreneurial mindset growing up, say, lemonade stands or Sony products like that? What's that? Did you have an entrepreneurial mindset uh, at an early age, say, snowboard, um, Sony products, anything like that? Not really. Um, I was, for the longest time, I was kind of undecided what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, like, junior high school, did all that. And my father was a woodcarver, like, all my family, my father, my grandfather, they were woodcarvers. Like, my family's from northern Italy, where that's pretty traditional and also really in town. Um, so I was, I was really torn between, you know, doing something like crafting. Uh, I went to art school. I went to wood carving school. There's a wood carving school in town for years after my junior high. Um, and, uh, I was thinking about taking over my dad's shop at that point. Um, I didn't do that. I was, I was, I was interested in archeology, span like in all kinds of things. I don't know. I didn't really have like most of my other bodies at school had an idea what they were going to be. I was like, okay, um, just let's see what's happening. You know, I'm, I was not an entrepreneur to yeah. begin with, for sure not. <laughs> so I'm curious then, uh, when did you exactly get introduced to snowboarding then? Um, I started, I really started snowboarding. Of, I mean, you can't really call it snowboarding, but I tried that, you know, standing sideways, sliding on the snow type of snowboarding mm-hmm. um, in the winter of 78, 79. I was a skater in the 70s and like I always wanted to surf you know and you know living in Bavaria you know you this is kind of a dream you just probably never gonna come true you know so um snowboarding for me was really my way of of surfing the mountains um I the first images I saw was like snowboarders um I saw those in uh I'm actually a magazine uh called Action Now magazine which is a magazine that kind of evolved out of skateboarder magazine in the late seventies. Um, so that was the first time I actually saw people snowboarding and I really instantly thought, this is it. This is exactly what I was going to do. Um, so I started, actually I started standing sideways on a sled. I started, you know, taking two skis, like a pair of ski, connecting them with just with a, you know, with a you know, play of wood and 
so started playing like that and um, eventually, you know, built, you know, a semi-serious snowboard, like, you know, somewhere around 80 and ordered my first snowboard, which is a Sims snowboard from Tom Sims at the time uh, from wow. the U.S., I think in 81 or something like that. So it was like a, like a slow progression. And I was happy with that type of snowboarding, you know. So for me, um, just sliding down the mountain, which is like my buddies, like I told you, you know, they're out there on the mountain just behind us right now. They're actually power surfing, which is kind of like a, a trend that's coming back right now since the last couple of years, which is snowboarding without bindings, which is for me kind of like wow. a flashback. That's how it started. You know? Yeah. So how, how does that work uh, without the bindings then? Um, how does it stay on? Um, it, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It, it's it's like kind of like skateboarding. Exactly. You just, you have like a traction pad, like on a surfboard, you know, so uh, you really have to, you know, have the right balance and you have to move the board the right way. There's a lot of limitations, of course, compared to bindings. Yeah. For us, back in the day, when I first rolled with bindings, I think it was in 82, three-ish or something. For me, it was a full revelation of, wow, this is pretty crazy. You can do all these things. You can actually ride on a slope, you know, like yeah. on a room slope, which you couldn't do before. And uh, um, power surfing is, you know, kind of like, you know, taking everything back, like just reducing it to the bare limit, to the bare bones. And um, it does work a lot better if you have a board that's specifically made for it. Yeah. So good power surfers are not just flat snowboards. Uh, without bindings they're specifically made they have specific designs that make them work turn yeah. better and hold an edge better so it's fun. so <laughs> talking on this progression then uh did you end up going to college and if so where did you go and what did you study no i didn't go to college i uh, okay. just did junior high and high school and that was it so but i didn't go to college um you... like i said i was kind of torn i was like i was really interested in archaeology yeah like that could be cool and then i kind of figured that's kind of like a like an art without future, like, you know, there's like no, you know, jobs there really, you know, it's just like interesting. I just always thought it's interesting to, you know, dig up old stuff and, and, and kind of like living in this area, which is kind of full of heritage and like the Romans came through here and people found like some 20, 30 years ago, they found like, uh, like weapons of Rome or like of a Roman camp wow. and like the Celts were here. And so you kind of like, it's kind of cool when you walk around you know, on the mountains, the Alps, there's a lot of traces of old cultures, like, yeah. you know, like old paths, like old, you know, all kinds of buildings and ruins and stuff, like all the castles and all that stuff. Wow. And I have that fascination still for like that heritage, I guess, you know, and I was, Definitely. I was happy. I still think maybe at some point I'm just going to go do this, you know, to have this, you know, this free like internship or whatever you do, you just go to Egypt and you just help dig for a month, you know? Yeah. I, I think I still want to do that. <laughs> you should, you should. <laughs> so I'm curious then, before founding uh, Nitro Snowboards, uh, what kind of jobs were you working and how much time were you able to give to your passion with snowboarding at your early years? I was, I like I said, I, I helped my dad. I, I did become a professional woodcarver. So I went to school there and I did that and uh, I helped my dad in the workshop. So I, I was a woodcarver <laughs> part-time anyways. Um, I was actually a professional frisbee player. Uh, I had awesome. a really good friend. I was, you know, we were super involved with that between AD and and I think eighty seven or eight. Mm -hmm. uh, we did competitions, but we also had a show teams. So we did like these, you know, freestyle frisbee demos and shows, and you know, so that was you know kind of an income. Um, yeah. 
that was really mainly what I did. Uh, I turned down a job offer to be an insurance guy. Um, they were looking for people that had like a, a craftsman's education and a, a high school education for like a special type of insurance for, yeah, for craft people, you know, like, you know, um, but uh, I really, you know, mainly got into snowboarding and I, I started probably the first large snowboard school operation, snowboard camp operation mm -hmm. in 86, 87, um, which was my main, my main job for, for, you know, four or five years until we started natural. Amazing. I'm curious with your early days and prior experience with uh, wood carving, what did the first prototyping experience look like when making that first snowboard? Yeah, like I said, it was it was pretty crude. Um, I was like the first boards I built were not really like boards, you know. They're they're like other things turned into into something that's rideable, you know. I, I you know like I said, I took a pair of skis, cut them like in half, just took the front half and you know mounted a plate on top of them. I used the water ski. I just so I, I modified existing things that looked like they could work for me. Mm -hmm. Until I made the first boards, um, also like in the late seventies, and there, um, we did everything. We had like a friend of mine got into surfing shape, uh, shaping surfboards, so we actually did experiment with uh, resin, fiberglass, and foam cores. So we made boards that were made like a surfboard. Mm -hmm. uh, we made boards that were made purely out of fiberglass, and uh, of course wood, which was my you know the easiest accessible material to me because we have a whole workshop still in the basement. Yeah. that uh, I could use for making boards. So it was it was pretty crude. It was very experimental. Um, and uh, it was, you know, only partly functional, I would say. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in your early days of Nitro then, when did you realize that you wanted to pursue Nitro full-time and commercialize this business and start selling your own boards? What time period was this? Um, well, Nitro really started like, you know, I got you know, this whole, this was a kind of a process. Um, like I said, I had the snowboard school. I was, you know, super busy with that because at the point it was probably the biggest operation of that kind in Europe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, I was also working for, uh, a number of snowboard magazines, which were like, you know, like shooting up all like everywhere at the time. Uh, I was writing articles about like writing technique. Uh, we were doing a lot of board testing, which was a big thing. There was like hundreds of boards on the market. The late 80s was crazy how many different board models and brands were on the market. Mm -hmm. So the magazines did these huge tests, you know, and uh, I ran a couple of those tests. So I had a very good feeling for what works and what doesn't, like what shapes really work um what flex patterns work and you know what works and what really doesn't really so uh, um in 89 i was i was uh, approached i got a call from a from a friend who was actually running a, a snowboard binding company at the time and he had a, a license a deal with another snowboard brand and he asked me if i wanted to come on board to help with you know board input shaping boards and and you know giving my know-how my experience and feedback on on uh, um, where those shapes should go from that with that brand license that he had. Yeah. We started with that and uh, ultimately we basically figured that we didn't want to just develop all this stuff under license. We said we have all this cool stuff happening now. Yeah. So let's start our own brand, you know. So it was kind of like a you know it was not like a one decision, okay yeah I want to I want to I want to make a snowboard brand. It was kind of like an evolution of 
getting involved to help build something else. And we had a good group of people together. We had, uh, I met my, my original partner who was in the windsurfing business. He had all these connections with distributions worldwide. He had a lot of sourcing connections. And we said, man, we have all these people. We have a great line that we developed for this brand license. So we said, why don't we just, you know, rather than paying a license fee, why don't we just rebrand it and just start our own brand, you know? And so it was kind of like a, it was an evolution. It was not just like one, okay, I'm going to do this, you know? Certainly. So where did you start selling then uh, in the early days? If online wasn't really an option at back then, was it local? Online was not an option. Um, yep. I think one of the biggest, the biggest assets we really had is, like I said, this, this, uh, uh, partner of mine, he had all these distribution connections. So from the beginning, we had a strong distribution in the US. We had a strong distribution immediately in Japan. We had uh, distribution in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy. So we pretty much had a lot of the key winter sport markets covered because, like I said, my partner had these connections already. And at the time, snowboarding and windsurfing was a, a very, very a uh, uh, very happy coexistence. Like a lot of my initial customers with that snowboard school were windsurfing shops. Mm. I had like special deals where they would actually come and bring their clients. Like we had busloads of people like, okay, windsurfing shops, so-and-so from Cologne would come with the whole bus. Yeah. So there was a very strong connection because the windsurfing shops needed something. We're looking for it. not looking, but they were happy to have something they could sell in the wintertime. So there was this immediate uh, um, like balance, uh, which also worked on the distribution level. So having these windsurfing distributions, they were immediately, oh man, that's great, you know, snowboarding, perfect, you know, fits our portfolio. So we didn't really, you know, have to look for a lot of distribution. We had a lot of connections in place with this partner of mine who had these connections, you know. Wow, that's amazing. So I'm curious at the start then, uh... I'm assuming that you had to have mass production for all the distribution. So did you have any funding from the start or acquire any funding? Um, no, <laughs> we had nothing. Absolutely. Wow. We had just, we had, I mean, you have to imagine this was, it was like, this is really the Hades of snowboarding. Like, um, and actually it, it got even, I want to say almost worse a little later, mm-hmm. um, where a lot of people got involved that didn't really belong there, let's say, you know. At that point, like in the late 80s, the people that were in the snowboard business, I think they all belonged there, you know, whether they came from snowboarding, from skating, from windsurfing, from surfing, whatever, you know, they, they all came out of the board sport uh, 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 universe, you know. Um, and yeah, we didn't have money. Uh, we just had a great line. We had distribution in place. And we went to this, to our former uh manufacturer at the time they don't exist anymore in austria it was a ski manufacturer mm-hmm. and uh, they were just coming out of a pretty bad time um they i think had some you know issues they were just coming back and um we just went to say hey guys we have a great line we have distribution we have all this stuff in place we can sell eight thousand snowboards we know we can look at us look at this this is what we have mm-hmm. can you make them and can you invoice them directly to those distributions you ship them directly. Wow. You invoice directly, and you pay us the difference between the price we agree on and the distribution price. So wow. from the beginning, we didn't have central warehousing. We we actually ran a model that you now you know call drop shipment. You know that's 
exactly. Kind of like the, you know, it has developed into the, the, the coolest thing in the last decade or so. Yeah. That's how it started because we had no choice, you know? Oh, sorry. You're good. <laughs> You're good. So yeah, we developed this this this. Um, we we really had to do it this way. Um, we just needed a good partner. So this board factory, ski factory, they didn't have much to lose, and they said, okay, yeah, this this looks cool. Let's do it. Wow. So they were financing the production. We only did boards in the very beginning. So they financed the production, and uh, they shipped direct to all distributions, and they actually invoiced to the distributions. And they just paid our cashback that, you know, that was in between our buying price and their distribution price. Yeah. And um, for the longest time, we did not have a central warehouse anywhere. We did it like we still do it like this for most of the country. Um, we just actually maybe 10, 12 years ago started actually building a, a central or using a central warehouse um, for Europe only and only for back orders, you know, for just like, you know, filling up like, you know, you know, reorders and stuff like that. But I would say still 80% of our initial shipments are still going direct. Wow. Yeah, but basically we're kind of forced, you know, without having funding. Um, the good thing is, of course, we never had to get any financial partners into the business. Um, from the beginning, the whole company was owned, operated and run by people that are yeah. coming from this industry. So... We were basically always free to do what we wanted to do. The only limitations was yeah. that you know we were kind of bound to certain suppliers. Whenever we needed a new supplier, you know, next thing was bindings. One of the main things was okay, can you drop ship? Can you work with our system? You know, if you want to do this, great, let's do it. You know, um, we are not going to take one order and ship it to one guy and then he unpacks it all and repacks yeah. it. Why? You know, you ship it to these countries and you invoice these countries. That's how we work. If you can work with this, yeah. then we have a deal, you know, so. Enjoying this episode so far around Tommy's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Ativa Fit. Offering at-home workout equipment, you'll be able to hit your fitness goals while being busy with work. With foldable, portable, and very valuable products, Ativa Fit is my go-to for my workout setup. I highly recommend Ativa Fit. Make sure to check them out for yourself using the link in this podcast description. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. What did the, from the early days, not now, but what did the design look like when designing a new snowboard and working with that manufacturer to be able to uh, create that and then drop ship that as well? Did that, was that fluent? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, was pretty easy. Um, I, like the very first board I ever designed was uh, a very, very uncommon snowboard, especially for the, for the time. Of course, it was part of a line. There was many boards in the line. So yeah. everything from the classic, you know, freestyle, all mountain and race sports and whatever. But the very first board I ever drew on my computer um, was a powder board, a swallowtail powder board. And we called it the retro. And that was like 89, 90. We called the board the retro um, because I had this, I still I had and still have this, you know, this high respect for, you know, some of the, 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 the grandfathers of snowboarding and snowboard design. Um, which at that point was Regis Volant. We did this board called uh, Apocalypse Snow. There was like a, there was a video um, or film series that was called Apocalypse Snow, where he was like on this snowboard, like this huge swallowtail snowboard. And he was always basically chased by skiers. That was the, always the theme, like, you know. And uh, I just loved these films. I said, okay, the first thing I want to do is like, make a board like that. So the retro was the very first board I ever made. Um, it's now like a, obviously a very highly sought after collector's item. Yeah. And, uh, 
so that was one thing. And then one of the other things that we did that was very hip at the time and very difficult for certain manufacturers to make was asymmetric boards. Uh, asymmetric race boards were like the, the latest thing in racing. You have to imagine at that time, freestyle snowboarding and racing were very equal and they were actually done by the same people. Today you have a very different scene. I don't even know the race board people because it's kind of a small, very specialized scene in snowboarding yeah. um, versus, you know, the freestyle, the big air, the half pipe, the street style, all that stuff is very, you know, very prominent. Uh, at that point, snowboarding was really divided 50-50 freestyle and racing. Like when we were competing, I was also competing in the World Cup in the late 80s. Everybody did both. Everybody did racing and then you had like your half pipe event, you had moguls. So it was kind of like, you know, a big mix and ASIM race sports were the big thing and a lot of factories couldn't build them. Mm. And um, with the factory that we worked with, they were able to make that because their press system allowed us to make asymmetric race sports. So um, that was another uh, thing I think that set us apart that we had very, very successful race sports at the time. So we had this exotic powder board. We had ASIM race sports and we had um, something that I still think is probably the key element and probably the least exotic, the least exciting, but the most important board you can make, the most difficult board to make are still the normal multifunctional all-mountain boards mm. that nobody really talks about, you know. Um, yeah. Everybody talks about that. What's the latest, greatest exotic thing? But I, from the beginning, put a big focus on I want this one board to do everything, which is still the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and at the end, you have a board in the line that's, okay, here's the all-mountain board. Everybody looks at it, okay, cool, yeah. And that's what everybody sells, but nobody talks about it, which is kind of sad, you know. Yeah. So that was, I think, the three pillars that we built, you know, the first line on. Amazing. With such a wide variety, with such a wide variety of offerings and snowboards, I'm curious, what were your main marketing strategies that launched to diversify from competitors? Um, I think it was always very rider-driven. Um, we did use like, you know, um, a lot of personalities, of course, me already being, you know, or having been in the industry for a while, um, helped with at least the European market. I was kind of known in that market. Uh, yeah. we had some riders early on, a really good friend of mine who was the first, the first most successful woman's female snowboarder, Peter Music. She was a pro rider for us. Uh, and of course we got some key riders in the U S in Japan early on. So we really from the beginning focused a lot on the rider involvement and, and being a brand that's built by and driven by people that actually snowboard. Um, yep. There was no real strategy, honestly, you know, we just thought we just tell the story as we see it. And uh, um, we always had like, you know, we, <laughs> we had things, we had, we even had an imaginary rider. We had a guy that, what was his name? Um, we had a guy that apparently set the speed record on a snowboard's world speed record with Velcro bindings. The guy never existed, you know, and his, <laughs> his motto was speed is safety. So we, we always, you know, of course, took a little bit of a fun approach, you know, not trying to take things too seriously and really just, you know, showing how we do it and what we do rather than trying to build some grand image of, okay, this is whatever nature is. Yeah. We didn't have money to build a big marketing campaign anyway, so we just showed what we do and and that was enough at the, you know in the beginning for sure you know certainly 
I'm curious <laughs> When I, when I look at other brands and when I look at Nitro, you're, you're right. The writers play such an amazing role and tremendous role in the brand's growth. Uh, what do you look for in a writer, quote writer, an endorser when joining the brand? Um, it's mostly personality, I think. Um, having been a writer myself, I have seen, I have seen like, and that was, I just remember this one big incident, in, uh, incident on this, you know, occasion in, in Breckenridge. There was a World Cup in, in, in Breckenridge. Actually, it was Stratton. There was one World Cup in Breckenridge and one in Stratton in, I think, 87, 8. I don't know. Um, and at the Stratton World Cup, um, there was this other team. Actually, they were teammates of us, but the U.S. part of our team. And um, I was I was a little shocked because there was writers that I really looked up to, their names, and I had met them here and there on, on, on events. But, I, you know, that was the first time I really, like, got to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was pretty, um, I was pretty shocked to see how, how, um, uh, how they're not very independent, how they're so depending on their team manager, like their team manager had to, you know, brought him the pizza, brought him the stickers, brought him this and that. <laughs> and we like, you know, us Europeans, we came there, like we had organized everything ourselves, our flights or, you know, hotels and everything. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that left a big impression on me. And, and still today, we are looking for writers that are self-sufficient, that are really able to promote themselves, that are characters. We're not only looking for like, like competition results or like video, you know, video coverage or whatever. I think personality is important. You know, our brand is very, is very personal. Um, and it's, you know, we've seen writers come and go that can't fit that image, but yeah. uh, we've, uh, we've, got, we've got writers that have stayed with us knowing they're not getting the money they maybe get from other brands for two or three years before they're being dropped, but because they're part of the family. So this, this family feel, um, this character that people, you know, show, uh, I think that's the key point. That's a key asset, this team spirit. We truly have a team, the writers, they help each other. Not They're competing with each other, of course, but yeah. they're first and foremost, they are part of a team. They're out there together. They're having fun together. And I think that's what we're looking for. That Certainly. that feel and that character in a, in a person. Certainly. Uh, looking at Nitro today, what would you say is the main demographic then? You do have such a wide variety, though, of boards. Um, it's, we have, we've, I mean, also with Nitro, I think we've, we've, we've definitely, you know, um, worked on, on our image, not worked on our image, but like, you know, we've reconsidered some of the things we've done and and uh, uh, looked for in our customers base. I think during the 2000s, the main focus was always of you like, you know, 20 to 25 year old, young, up and coming hot rider. And like, you know, like, you know, totally focused on snowboarding, like totally living it. Um, and at some point, you know, we, we started thinking about, okay, that's cool, but there's so many other people. Of course, I mean, you get older yourself. You start having kids, and around you, everything seems to, you know, to change a little bit. And um, all of a sudden, you, you really come to realize that there's more out there than that main focus point of the market. Like, everything always seemed to revolve around that age group, you know? The yeah. graphics, the boards, all the efforts, all the marketing, like everything right in that point. Um, and we started, you know, really looking more at 
other people that snowboard. I always used to talk about snowboarders and people who snowboard. A snowboarder yeah. is somebody that really lives the life. And people who snowboard just do it, you know, maybe a week a year. You know, they, they come from whatever they come from and they go on a winter vacation. And it is interesting. We have a really small area here, like, you know, locally. And it's not any of the big hotspots of winter sport. You know, it's a really small family resort. Yeah. Um, with the exception of this mountain over there, which is the steepest slope of Germany, but it only opens, you know, three times a winter because it's too dangerous. But <laughs> the main resort is it's kind of a small thing. So you don't, know, it's definitely not a big hotspot for snowboarding or skiing or anything. There's a chairlift, a couple of tea bars, and that's it. So most of the people you see here are not good skiers and not good snowboarders. Mm. And, um, but when you live here, when you ride here, you see these people riding, it's like, man, you know, all these people are snowboarding. They all really want to do it, you know, and they deserve the respect. So at some point, you know, about probably 10, 12 years ago, we really started to reconsider, do we want to portray Nitro as this core, you know, brand, you know, in the future anymore? And we said, no, you know, um, snowboarding is for everybody. And we, I respect Today, I respect everybody, even if you, you rent the board. And uh, we used to treat our rental products like, okay, shit, man, we got to do rental stuff. Okay, let's do it. You know? And yeah. today, I'm super proud, you know, like, man, you know, if somebody is renting a snowboard and he doesn't have the money or he doesn't want to deal with owning the equipment, which is more and more becoming normal, yeah. Uh, yeah. why, why he, is, he, is he a worse person than anyone else? You know, he just, he loves snowboarding. That's great, you know. So he deserves a product. So our demographic, to answer your question, has definitely widened. Um, mm -hmm. To me now, I respect every and any snowboarder, uh, except for like idiots, of course, you know, which <laughs> exist in any form, in any sport, in any, you know, area. But um, I really respect that, you know, the part-time snowboarder, the tourist that just, you know, uh, goes riding once a year, all the way to the full-on die-hard core snowboarder. I try not using this term core anymore as a as an equivalent of cool or whatever you know because core to me is kind of an exclusive thing and as a brand we definitely want to be inclusive anybody who sure. snowboards is absolutely welcome and uh, um you know growing up with this whole dilemma of snowboarders versus skiers this whole thing you know i lived it you know and you know once again this town here was one of the last resorts that actually opened to snowboarding in europe and uh, I'm also, now I'm beyond this snowboarder against skier thing, you know. Yeah. I'm absolutely happy if there's snowboarders and skiers that go out and ride together, you know. The new generation, my kids, they don't grow up like that anymore unless we teach them to. Yeah. So, um, like, I even welcome skiers. Let's, let's go ride together. I think that's the main thing, you know. Let's just go out and ride together. No matter where you come from, no matter what your well, financial possibilities are, whether you're wearing the right jacket or hat or not, you know, I think that's the key message. I Definitely. think that's defining night today. Of course. So to the listeners out there, uh, say a snowboarders listening, uh, how would you describe the differences of Nitro to competitors that they might be looking at as well? Um, I think what makes us special from a from an approach standpoint is that we are owned by snowboarders. We don't have, there's no financial investors. There's no big conglomerate. There's no group or anything that owns part of us. Uh, it's owned by people that snowboard, that design snowboard, that make snowboards. Um, it's a rider owned and operated company 
um, which sounds cool, yeah. but for a consumer doesn't actually, at the first point, doesn't make a difference, of course, you know, you know, you couldn't care less, you know, whether your cell phone is made by a company that's owned per- privately or is publicly traded, maybe, you know, I think it's snowboarding does make a difference. Uh, it's snowboarding, there's a lot, as uh, a lot of giving back, I think that's needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do feel very obliged to that community. So we have a very strong urge to give back to snowboarding, to the market, to the sport. Um, we are definitely, you know, not the biggest brand out there, but I think we're, we're you know, serious about what we do. Um, we are diverse, of course. Uh, we listen to the riders, we listen to the markets. And uh, I think the big thing is that we're part of the snowboarding community. I think mm-hmm. that's something that not every brand can say today. Many brands yeah. are now part of, like I said, some other big winter sports, you know, company, and they're just a profit center, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying that the people that work there, a lot, a lot of these guys I know, and many of them are my friends, you know, then there's a lot of people that are super dedicated to what they do. Ultimately, um, not all the decisions that are being made there are made for snowboarding, but they're purely made for the business. Yeah. Um, I think that's the big difference, you know, aside from any product stuff, you know, from a mentality mindset, not being owned by a big group allows us to basically do what we want. If I think I want to do the sport, whether it sells or not, I'm going to do it. Definitely. Period. Definitely. (laughs) Well, I like to conclude each episode with this. Uh, If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, uh, maybe something you've learned along the way or regret, what would that be? Um, The the main thing I think would would be um, don't do it if you don't really feel a strong passion for it. But at the same time, don't let the passion overwhelm you. You know, we've seen a lot of good shops that have been run by people that have a lot of passion. And at the end, they forgot about the business. So bring the right amount of passion. Don't only look for that business case, but once you have that great idea, that great concept, um, make sure that you stay focused, you stay humble, and don't overspend and only spend the money you actually make. Definitely. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Nitro at nitrosnowboards.com. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.